And this morning, as Hannah mentioned, we're continuing our series looking at the story of Elijah, looking at the person of Elijah. Um, and Clint c- kicked this sermon series off last week. And if you weren't here, I definitely recommend going online and having a listen. It was a great way to kick off the series. And he really started this story for us, the story of Elijah, this prophet, this man that came in a key moment in the story of the people of God, the nation of Israel. That while they had this past where God called them, God set them apart, God rescued them and placed them in the promised land. That over decades, over centuries, got to a place where actually they decided, let's absorb some of the religious practices of the nations around us and kind of pick and choose which gods we want to go to about which things. We'll kind of let's figure out some strategies to get the best bang for our buck worship-wise. And this is the moment that Elijah enters in with this message of there is one God. There is one God worthy of our praise. And so the message last week was founded on the start of the story of Elijah where he comes to King Ahab and says, essentially this weather report, the rain's going to stop until I say it starts again, as this challenge to the God that they were worshipping of Baal, this God of the rains. So Elijah drops this message and then vanishes, and the rains stop. And he goes and settles in a brook where God feeds him and sustains him. And then the story ended last week with Elijah going and living with a woman and her son and performing the miraculous with her. So our story picks up after that. And as we enter the story this morning, I want to open with a word of prayer for us. So won't you join me? Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us. Lord, as we enter into it this morning, may our hearts, may our minds, may our lives be soft soil for what you're wanting to say to us. Come and speak to us in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the story last week was Elijah says this word and disappears for all intents and purposes. And then we pick this up, the story up, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And it starts with these words. After a long time, in the third year, the third year after he said this word, to King Ahab, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing Jezebel is Ahab's wife. Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So, this is moment, so Elijah last week gave this word, the rain's going to stop, and the rain stopped. And it's been years, the word says, like years of not raining. And you can imagine, like this is a culture that is agrarian. It's based on you get your food, you get your like you get your food from growing crops yourself, you get your money, you get your wealth, you get income. It's based on what you can grow for yourself and those around you. And there hasn't been rain for years. You get like there's food shortages, 
more than we can imagine here. Food prices are like skyrocketing as food is scarce and hard to come by. Food is running out. People will be starving. There'll be infighting. There'll be chaos. As, what do we do to just get by day to day? There's a famine in the land. We can't grow anything. It's not raining. This is the world that Elijah is about to step back into. And it's not just a world where it hasn't rained and there's not food. But the story tells that Jezebel has hunted down all the prophets of God. And there's a small remnant who are in hiding. So it's not just their physical needs have been really hard to meet. But their spiritual needs too. The word of God has been absent. The prophets who would normally come and say, this is what God's doing, this is what God's up to, are gone. This is the world that Elijah enters back into. This world where it's got to the point where this King Ahab pulls aside his assistant, his administrator, you know, like got to the point of everyone's saying they're hungry. I've sent out people to go find some food. Like it's kind of like the boss saying, "Okay, fine. Like I guess I should. I need to be the one who needs to go do the job." You guys couldn't get it done. I'm going to go explore the land myself, see what food I can find that people might be hiding, might be storing, that we can bring and feed our people because stuff is, like, is chaos. So Ahab and Obadiah have this conversation of, we'll split the land in half. I'll go this way, you go that way, and let's just find whatever food in the land we can. So Ahab goes off one way, Obadiah goes off the other. And Obadiah, in a passage, stumbles across Elijah. It says this, as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, Elijah replied, go tell your master, Elijah is here. This man who spoke this word of the rains will stop until I say otherwise has finally come back. And Obadiah bumps into them and kind of freaks out. Like, this, like, Ahab is mad at Elijah. And I've got to go fetch him and say he's over here. What if you vanish, Elijah? What if I bring him back and you're gone? Can you promise me, like, you're not going to disappear? Because I'll get killed if you're not here when I bring him back. They have this interaction. And then Elijah promises, no, like, I'm here to confront Ahab. I'm here for this. So they journey together and Ahab finally meets Elijah. And when, in verse 17, when he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. There's this odd fact here that Elijah is confronting Baal, the God that they are worshipping, this God who was meant to provide the rains. And Ahab's response is not to blame Baal. It hasn't rained for three years. He's the God he, sh- he thinks he should be worshipping. It hasn't rained. Instead, he blames Elijah. Not recognizing to start, like some self examination of the God that you worship, the God that you go-to for your needs, for your reign, for your source of wealth is not coming through. And instead of realizing the folly of your ways, you're going to take it out on Elijah. Instead of process and coming to realize, actually, maybe I need a change, he blames Elijah. And I know for me, when 
And I wonder for some of us, if sometimes when this stuff comes up in our lives, when we realize, man, we've been going after, chasing after the wrong thing, rather than realizing that and thinking, oh, maybe I've done something wrong, the thing I'm chasing after is not worth it. We blame the thing that confronts us. That maybe God brought in our path to bring that to mind, that uncomfortable feeling that comes up. And here it says, it's not just him, but it says you and your father's family. That There's a sense of this is the way Ahab has done it because he's been taught to do it. It's been a generational thing. We go to Baal for worship, for the rains. That it's easier to get angry at Elijah rather than confront his family way of doing things. That sometimes for us it's easier to blame rather than confront maybe the family stuff that I grew up in wasn't the most healthy, best way of handling this. Instead, we blame the Elijahs. And Elijah's response is this, okay, let's have this confrontation. He says, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah gives his second sermon that we come across. Elijah went before the people and said this, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah gives super brief but confronting sermons. This one in Hebrew is 16 words. In English, it's 23. And it's this word that comes, and you just, the people send it this awkward silence. Like, you can almost see people, like, kind of looking at their feet, kind of shuffling, like, oh, man, he's confronting this. That we've lived lives where we've worshipped multiple things. That while we might say that we are the people of Yahweh, our lives don't show that. That our attention, our focus is in all different directions. And you can't worship both. Matthew, uh, Jesus in the book of Matthew says something similar. He says this in chapter 6 verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And for the people of God, Baal was this God of money. That the rains, the fertility that he promised, that was your source of not just day-to-day sustenance, it was your potential source of wealth. Like if you had a, if it rained, you got a good crop season, you could fill up your silos. Like you would be sorted. So you go to Baal, this God, this that would provide your income, your security, your wealth. And Jesus says, you can't, you can't serve me and that. You've got to pick. Elijah says that. You can't do both. It's time to make a choice. And I think this God of Baal, this God of money, this God of mammon, is so insidious and it creeps into not just the Israelites, lives but our lives we might not call it a god that we worship with a name like that but i think it can creep in in all kinds of ways the things that we pursue the things that capture our imaginations that we get passionate about 
God might say, is that becoming a God to you? And particularly around this thing of you know, what we worship and our worship lives. And I was reflecting this week, even Sydney's really good with this in a way that I'm not. So for her, one of the ways to express it, she listens to worship music a lot. She loves worship music, connecting to God, worshipping through worship music. The way that she does it around her house is she pulls out her phone, pulls up Spotify and presses play and listens via her phone. Now me, my default response is, oh babe, like, there's a better way to do this. Like, can we just buy some speakers? Like, this would be a better worship experience if we just put a bit of money into it. You could listen to, like, the songs would sound better, kind of unconsciously. You could connect with God if you spent more money on the process. And, but for her, it's like playing on a phone. It's like, this is enough for me to worship. I don't need anything more. But mine, I know about you, my process is, like, always that, like, oh, but how can we just make it that little bit better? Because I know if we spent, like, a little bit of money on some speakers, it would, like, you'd get, like, a 50% improvement in, like, the worship experience. But then I also know myself that it would be like, we'd have those speakers for a month, and they'll be like, well, if we spend a little bit more, I can add an extra 20% on that experience. And it's just kind of this building thing until it's like, well, the final, let's spend a thousand bucks, and we'll improve it just that extra 1%. But like, it makes a difference. And it's not just with these, but I, I know for me, I don't know about you, but like, can be like that with a whole lot of things in life. The thing that immediately was like, oh, It'll just be a little bit nicer if I just put that little bit more effort. It becomes this creeping, like, to have a better experience, I just need to get a little bit more. Like the worship experience, it'll be a little bit better if I just spend a little bit more. Hobbies, interests become this, like, oh, this is just the fun thing that I do to connect with God. Like, the God of mammon, the God of Baal, the God of money comes in and sneaks in, but like... Man, you connect with God, mountain biking in the hills. But man, if you just buy that like next model up, it's going to be a better connection with God in the hills, right? And we can do that with so many things in our lives of like, oh, but if I just like get the next thing, oh, it'll make it so much better. And our hobbies and our interests, the God of Baal, the God of money, the God of like sneaks in and it suddenly it's like, well, I can't get joy and peace if I don't have the good experience, like if I go back to just listening with the phone playing Spotify play, like, oh. And it becomes more about what you're investing in it to make it happen. And I see, like, I'm sure we've all noticed this, it's the same with social causes in our society. You notice, the, I notice the moment when the God of Baal, the God of money, the God of mammon steps in and kind of takes over an insidious way. When a social cause is taken up by a brand or a company that has nothing to do with the social cause, it's kind of the moment of like, oh, that's where the God of money's taken over. It's not about the cause anymore. It's how people can make money off it. How can I sell a car or a coffee machine based on social injustice? It's like, I don't think they're related. But the God of man and the God of money like sneaks in, has ways of infiltrating. And for some of us, I would just wonder if it's what, 
it's that the created good thing that God wants to use becomes the thing we fixate on and focus on. That all our energy goes into. We get focused on our imagination. That's what we go to in our spare time thinking about. I wonder for some of us, it's just if it's just the money itself, like that sense of, I need a sense of security and safety. So I've got to get the silo to this much just to be safe and feel at peace. And then something comes along that disturbs that peace. You're like, oh, actually, I've got to get a second silo because I need a bit more to feel that peace again. And it's this kind of this, this peace that you can never quite satisfy. And that's what Elijah, I think, is addressing. You'll go... You can't chase after that stuff and chase after God. You're going to have to pick. Which way are you going to go? And the way that Elijah confronts it is he invites them to set up two altars on Mount Carmel. He's bring two bulls, cut them up, put them on the altar. Prophets of Baal, you worship your God. See if he can light up your altar I'll worship my God see if he'll light up my altar see what happens so the prophets of Baal started off they're invited set up your altar start praying start worshipping start calling out to your God and see if he will start the fire and they do that they shout Baal answer us and there's nothing there's silence there's just cold meat sitting on an altar. So Elijah comes in cheeky, saying, I think you guys need to shout a little bit louder. I think you can, inc- if you increase your worship volume, maybe your God will listen. Maybe, we're, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's off in another place, busy with something else, and he just can't hear you because he's not focused. Just like be a bit more louder and a bit more expressive, and maybe your God will respond. And so they shout louder. They make more noise. And they get to the point where they actually start slashing themselves. Like blood coming out. Which in their worship tradition was they're worshipping a god of the rain. So hey, if we can get some fluid spilling, some blood spilling, that will be a point at a hymn of like, hey, can you do the same for us? Can you bring the rains? And there's no response. No one answers. Nothing happens. And it says they continued their frantic prophesying and worship. Eugene Peterson talks about the worship of Baal, of the transcendence of the deity is reduced to the ecstasy of manipulated emotions. That worship of Baal is reducing worship to the spiritual status of the worshiper. I need to get something out of worship so I've got to work myself up into it and then God might move and I wonder for us like the things that we're chasing after how much time and energy how much effort we put into them in the same way that the worshippers of Baal yell and scream and frantically prophesy that the things that we chase after are the same things, that we can whip up all this emotion and feeling about this interest or this hobby or the thing that we're pursuing, 
But if we're honest when we're lying in bed at night, when everything's calm, how would we describe the state of our soul? That we're not at peace. We don't have hope or joy. Because we know in the morning we've got to wake up and do that same drive to get that peace and security again that we so want. And Elijah comes and it says this, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So while the priests of Baal's altar is this altar built up around, we've got to whip ourselves up into a frenzy with the hope that our God might listen. The altar that Elijah sets up is one that tells the story of God's goodness and faithfulness. Like it's built on rebuild. There's 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It's an act of remembrance. Not a remember how good God is so you better respond, but remember how good God is for you. Like it would be thinking about, oh yeah, our God was a God who called Abraham and said, I will give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the beach. That's how many descendants I'll give you. And then his grandson, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, had 12 sons, the 12 sons that the stones represent. But they're not just 12 sons anymore. They literally are a nation of 12 tribes. A sign of God's faithfulness that that promise he made to Abraham was fulfilled. Abraham was made like a people. God fulfilled his promise and the altar reminds him of that. And then then after the altar is built, we get the, the pouring of the water, which like at a surface level reading is just making it like this is going to have to be a miracle. A fire coming down anyway is hard pouring water on it is upping the ante but there's all like this also rings to what god has done in the people of god's history it talks there are four jars that were poured three times so 12 pourings so those 12 tribes remember what god has done for them people of god remember what god has done for you when you were stuck in slavery when you're caught up, when you're unable to free yourself from the oppression around you, remember what your God did for you? Remember? He pulled you, he rescued you out of that. This pouring of water is, you came through the Red Sea by the power of God. You came through the Jordan River by the power of God and nothing else. Remember what God has done for you. Remember what God has done for us. That God's salvation moment isn't just this moment where we come to faith and get our ticket for heaven. But God's saying, no, I'm saving you. That you get to experience life in the promised land now. Get to have moments of that 
encounter. You get to participate in that. For us, remember when you came to faith or when you've had moments of encounter with God, just the peace and the joy and the hope that God gave you in those moments in a way that the gods of Baal never give us. The altar to Yahweh is one of remembering just God's goodness and grace over us. That it's not an altar that we come and whip ourselves before as worship. It's an altar we come before and say, man, look at what he's done for each of us. Wow. How special is that? It's an altar that I think the response should be, man, why do we go to other places? Why do we go to other places where we have to whip ourselves, pour all this energy in, come up with all these emotions to try and get a little bit of joy, a little bit of peace, a little bit of hope? When God says, come to my altar, I give that graciously. And for you, if you're not experiencing that, today, at this moment in this week, the invitation God's saying, come, I want to explore with you why you're not feeling that, why you're not experiencing in that. Because he is a God worthy of our worship and praise and adoration for all that he has done. Because it says this as our passage continues. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, lying down, and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That while the, the altar to Baal was this one of, man, we've got to try and get a glimpse of God. And a glimpse of something. We put all this energy in and nothing happens. The altar of God is a remembrance of all he has done for us. And God, as we acknowledge that, as we... Instead of orienting our worship at what might fix us, where we can pick and choose, God, when we focus our attention on God and his goodness and what he has done for us, the fire of God comes down and meets. Not because of anything that the worshippers have done. All they have done is said, I'm focusing my attention on God, the true, the living God. Don't worry about the other places that promise things that they won't fulfill. And I love the words that Elijah says. He says these words, <clears throat> that, Lord, you are turning their hearts back again. That even the work of focusing on God is a grace given by God. Even the invitation to, hey, let's just focus on God, not these other things. God's the one doing that work in our lives. God's saying, I... You're not going to get any, you're going to get death from chasing after Baal and money and just consuming things and collecting things. I want to turn you back. I want to lead you to the only place that is worthy of your praise, your worship, your adoration, your attention, your obsession, your imagination. And it's the Lord God, the living God. That's our invitation. 
And I wonder, as I sat with it this week, I wonder if, for some of us, it's an invitation to a season, a moment of simplicity. That it's actually really hard sometimes to discern the things that I enjoy, the things that I love, the things that I get excited about in my life. Are they, am I seeing them as good things created by God or have they become idols? Am I going to them for things that I shouldn't be going to them for? Are they absorbing too much of my being and God might be calling us to re- me to refocus? And the invitation of simplicity is to strip away that stuff. Maybe for just a season, maybe forever to say, I am going to live a life of simplicity where I don't go to those places to meet needs that they were never going to meet in the first place. I'm going to sit with the Lord my God knowing his goodness because I know his track record, trusting that he's going to meet me. And I know for me, like, this is uncomfortable. That initial moment of not going to your default practice your default like way to meet needs is uncomfortable and brings like oh and the invitation is to like just sit in that discomfort and it might just be for minutes that you can do it but sit in a I want to do this but I'm just going to sit with God and invite him see how he might want to meet me in this see how he might want to heal me in this and I think a life of simplicity does that where we regularly take account of where our energy, where our time, where our money goes and says there's a risk I might be worshipping these things and I just want to take a second to re-examine, to look at it and to make sure that the true, the living God is the one that I'm worshipping. And this morning we get to practice as we do each week that act of remembrance that again, we don't do this in of ourselves, earning God, but it's, and we come and our response starts with receiving the gift of Holy Communion. That we come and receive and remember the goodness that God has poured out for us. So I want to pray to close and then Hannah's going to lead us, come and lead us in a moment of communion. Lord God, I'm coming before you this morning, Lord, and I'm so thankful that you are a God who does not leave us wandering, does not leave us in desert seasons, who does not leave us lost pursuing the wrong things, Lord, but you come and you reveal yourself to us. You come and you redirect us. Lord, that may be through uncomfortable feelings, but Lord, it's done for our good. And Lord, this morning, may we as a people be one to examine our lives, our energies, our passions, our involvements, and can hold them before you. We can test them with you, Lord Jesus. Because Lord, we are people who want to worship you and you alone. Because you are worthy more than we can imagine of our worship and our praise and our adoration and our attention. 
Come and move amongst us. Speak us. Lead us to those things that are pulling us away. Those places where we look to the practical, to the financial, to meet needs that they're never going to meet, Lord. Come and reveal. Do a healing work amongst us. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.